Clean pipes and internet security. Tech companies in Hong Kong. And global perspectives of China. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss the challenges ahead for tech companies in Hong Kong. The implementation of the national security law in Hong Kong may be a death sentence for democracy in the region. And China's trust account with the world. The obvious question is, and what happens after the rise? So after China's power had grown, what would be China's behaviour? But first, Tom Yuren speaks to Sean Duca, Vice President and Regional Chief Security Officer for Asia-Pacific and Japan at Palo Alto Networks. They discuss ASPE's Clean Pipes report and how internet service providers can do more to protect users online. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Sean. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you, Tom? I'm great. I've been looking at what's called Clean Pipes. And I've been doing a research paper on it, and it's come out this week. So I thought we could just have a chat talking about the different perspectives. So I've come at it from the perspective really of an outsider. I've never worked in an ISP, and I've never worked in really a defensive role. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of interesting, my journey throughout it. So I thought I'd get you as a technical person who's been thinking about clean pipes for a long time. Now, first of all, let's start off. When I talk about clean pipes, what is it? What are we talking about? Yeah, so look, the the concept of clean pipes is really around uh, providing clean, safe, and secure internet to people, and whether it be through uh, a mobile network operator, uh, so your traditional sort of telco, uh, or an ISP, or in the world of an NBN, where you've got RSPs, the retail service providers. Uh, it's all about them sort of cleaning a lot of the traffic up. Uh, before they actually sort of provide that connectivity to you, uh, they're really sort of cleaning up. And the reason for that is cyber criminals uh, consistently try and introduce new ways to uh, update and attack and use a range of different tools that are out there to automate their delivery of uh, malicious software and and attacks to our devices and the systems that we actually connect to. So it's basically all about how do we clean that up before it actually gets to you. Yeah, so one of the things that occurred to me as I started thinking about this problem is that all the time people come to us and ask us, you know, what's the solution for small and medium enterprise? Mm -hmm. And it's pretty clear in Australia, there's some big businesses that do a really bang up job about cybersecurity. They've, uh, you know, people talk about the banks, they've got lots of money, they understand that cybersecurity is a problem that costs them money. So they spend money to mitigate that risk. It's much, much harder to know what the answer is for individuals and small business. My wife runs essentially a micro business um, and I'm the sole technical and cybersecurity support for that business. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm half decent, I like to think, but that doesn't <laughs> scale to the whole of Australia. And it seemed to me that Clean Pipes is possibly one of those initiatives that might actually make a difference for that. Really, the majority of Australians who either don't have the skills or the resources to protect themselves online. So how do you think that would work? Would it make much difference? How much difference do you think it would make? Uh, Great question. And I think a lot of that stems from, so today in Australia, I think we've got about 96% uh, of businesses are small to medium enterprises, which probably accounts for about 2.2 million, I think it actually is. 
Um, so if you talk, talk about the people that do the bang-up job at the top end of town, uh, but then you've got let's call the great unwash of more than 2 million different organisations that are out there that maybe don't have the skill set, don't really understand what the threat actually is. Even though we spend a fair bit of time on the education, the awareness, which I think is still fundamental and still needs to continue, I think it's more a case of in light of what we see really sort of impacting organisations today, uh, making its way into mainstream media pretty much every day again, I think it's more a case of what else could we do to ensure that we could help people that probably can't even help themselves? And what are some of the things we can do? It's not trying to say let's, let's ensure that they don't have anything to do, but what else could we do to ensure that when they do connect online, when they are trying to conduct their businesses and and are connected and really, you know, especially during sort of COVID, we're talking about being 100% digital. How do we ensure that there's a way that we could start to ensure that they are not the next victim? And what preventative measures could we actually do to ensure that they're not that next victim? Because the one thing that hits one organisation, as we all know, you know, that same attack or same technique probably is going to be used 100 times over. So if we know about it, should we actually turn around and say, let's just simply clean it up and prevent that from actually hitting the next person time and time again? Yeah, one of the things I started to think about as I was doing the background research was the fact that the really impactful changes to security um, over the last 20 years have affected, you know, pretty much everyone without anyone, uh, the, the consumer, the use, the end user having to do anything. So the examples I thought of were just the fact that operating system updates now get rolled out automatically for, yep. for people. Um, and then... The browser manufacturers all built in automatic updates, but they also prevent you from going to stuff they've identified as bad. And these are not perfect. People still get hacked and owned because they browse to a website or download something, um, but they provide some sort of default security to you know the vast majority of internet users. I wanted to ask you about how long have you been an advocate of clean pipes? When did you first hear about it? I would say that it's been at least um, probably more, it's actually probably been more than 10 years at a minimum. I think it's something that has definitely been talked about in the industry. I've definitely talked about it. Um, and I think a lot of it really stems from, and obviously the world has changed in the last 10 years, 10 plus years, but it really is the fact that, you know, once upon a time, if I think back to my sort of early beginnings in the security industry, it was, you know, obviously we were all focused on malware. Back then it was probably all viruses. Uh, that was sort of really hiding inside our own documents. I think now that the threat has changed, the motivation is definitely becoming a lot more apparent in terms of what the attackers are doing. But I think now more than ever, it's just it's a case of we're seeing this time and time again where organisations are being impacted. Uh, what could we do that little bit extra to ensure that every time someone goes online, there's that sort of that seatbelt concept? You know, if I jump into an Uber today, you know, I'm always going to sit in the backseat of a car and I'm going to put my seatbelt on. It's kind of ingrained in us. You know, how, how do we have that ability where there's some level of protection, safety mechanisms or some sort of security that's there that it's just behind the scenes. It's happening. It, it's actually trying to sort of, you know, reduce the, that sort of impact that, uh, that we're seeing sort of time and time again being impacted or organisations being impacted by. Do you have any idea why it hasn't happened before now? I think it's probably a couple of reasons. I think the... I think the threat has probably changed. I think it's becoming a lot more apparent than what it used to be. I think for a long time, it was, we spent probably a number of years, and I definitely think of the conversations that I've had, we've spent a lot of years trying to raise awareness and educate people. Whereas I think about how the government has now shifted their focus on not really a case on 
Oh, that sounds like a good idea. I think it's more a case of it's a matter of when it's going to happen now uh, and how it's probably going to happen as opposed to the days where it was probably more, you know, should it happen? Should we actually do this? Uh, if it should happen, what would it look like? I, I think we've just, we've spent a fair bit of time sort of educating people. I think if you start to look at, you know, the Prime Minister's announcements around sort of that massive cyber attack taking place a couple of weeks back, or the sustained sort of cyber attack taking place, the number of organisations that have been impacted by ransomware, yep. straight, more and more you keep on seeing we are not immune to these threats that are targeting organisations around the world. And Australia is no longer that sort of island where it doesn't happen. It's, it is happening all the time. Yeah. So when I was looking at it, I got a strong sense that at the ISP level, people mostly just didn't think it was their job to provide yeah. that extra level of security. And I was, I was thinking back to, I was wondering myself, is it because the costs have changed? I mean, the the harms to people have increased. So I think we're ever more connected now. So perhaps... 20 years ago, um, doing enhanced security just didn't make sense because there wasn't that much online. Maybe people didn't lose as much. They weren't doing online banking. So much of their identity wasn't tied up online. But over time, that what's at risk has increased. And at some point, it's I think it's probably started to make sense. Uh, but the attitudes of both government and industry hadn't sort of caught up with that reality. I, I guess... This year alone, we've seen ransomware attacks on big organisations, Toll Logistics, uh, Lion, the brewery. Um, all businesses are becoming IT businesses at their core, and yet the kind of default security we've provided has not kept up. Look, and I, I guess it goes back to sort of your earlier point around, you know, some people do a bang-up job because they probably realise the threat and what it really means to, to their business. So it seems like... Government hasn't caught up, but now we've got an opportunity. You know, there's a new cybersecurity strategy coming out very soon. And mm -hmm. it seems like an initiative that perhaps has got legs. Where do we start on that? Yeah, look, I think that the good starting point is to start looking for any anomalies of what we've actually sort of seen or coming into the country and then also at the same time leaving the country. So recognising what is considered bad traffic versus good traffic and I don't think it's the world according to one particular, you know, let's call it a security vendor or one particular telco. I think collectively where we need to get to is a world where I may have five bits of information and say, this is what bad looks like. You know, Tom, you've got five bits of information. And then maybe, you know, one of the banks are looking at all these things that, that like bits of malware that are targeting their customer base. And they've found five bits of information collectively. We now have 15 bits of information to say, this is what bad looks like. So we really start to compare that list of bad to traffic that's actually passing through these networks already, whether it's in or out of the country. Uh, I think where countries in the past have done this is they've waited until a machine is compromised and then they say any traffic destined outside of the country that's going to these IP addresses or domains that we know attackers use as part of their own infrastructure, let's stop that. And I think that's probably a good starting point that the government could probably look at. I think what the next step is of where we need to eventually get to is traffic that's destined to the country. We need to be able to compare that traffic with what's considered known bad. And that's going to be pieces of malicious software, so your malware. It's going to be a range of different types of attacks, anomalies that we see out there. But we can't simply turn around and say it's a binary yes or no. I think there's just some things that we're gradually going to start to turn on. So it's not a 100% foolproof system from day one. We're going to keep on sort of growing, maturing, and starting to work it out. 
I think the big thing around that we need to think about is because we're talking about it from a nation level, so national national protection level, we need to get consistency across every single telco, ISP, and RSP. They need to be looking at that same playbook of this is what is considered known bad. The way that we enforce that policy has to be consistent because there's no point in you having a rock solid way of you know cleaning things up, providing that clean pipes, and I have some hokey way of doing it over here. Uh, government from a policy standpoint should think about how do we help incentivize a telco to do this because I think that probably changes the way a little bit as well. But then at the same time, it's kind of a case of we can't just simply say, let's not do this because I think the tide has turned over the years where we say, we have to do this now. Government agrees that we have to do it, but now it's the case of let's ensure that we've got that implementation of how we do it rock solid across the country. Yeah, I think it's quite important to focus on exactly what the problem is you're trying to solve and that helps make it clear that there's um, harms on both sides in the sense that right now we just let traffic come in and out. Um, We probably do a minimal amount of blocking. Uh, I guess a more aggressive posture would get more blocking of bad stuff, much more blocking of bad stuff and the occasional blocking of something inadvertently. Um, But I think that's a balance that needs to be struck. We can't strike it all in one direction or all in another direction. And and that's, I think, we're having a process and a way to fix things or adjust things would be useful. Yeah, and look, I think it's also a case of minimisation. You know, we can't stop everything, especially at a a national level. Uh, How do we minimise the threat? How do we minimise the impacts that we're seeing uh, against organizations here. And there's also individuals, you know, it's not just simply businesses that are being impacted, consumers are. You know, mums and dads of Australia are being targeted and, and, you know, impacted by this. So how do we ensure that we're not disrupting the livelihood of individuals or disrupting prosperity of the, of the economy as well? Thanks very much, Sean. No worries. Thanks, Tom. Next, Louisa Bochner and Elise Thomas discuss the future for tech companies in Hong Kong as the Great Firewall approaches. Thanks so much for joining me, Elise. Thanks for having me, Louise. So the implementation of the national security law in Hong Kong may be a death sentence for democracy in the region. You wrote about how US tech giants drew a line in the sand with regards to the Hong Kong law enforcement's requests for data. So can you tell me a bit about this? Why did the tech giants do this and what was the purpose? Um, So what we saw earlier this week was a seemingly coordinated announcement from a number of the large US tech companies that they were no longer going to cooperate with uh, requests from the Hong Kong law enforcement authorities for user data. Um, And that's a response to, obviously, as you said, the recently passed national security law, which um, has some really significant implications for democratic rights and freedom of speech in Hong Kong, um, and in particular in relation to people who may have participated or um, supported the Hong Kong protests that we've seen over the past year or so. Um, And so this decision by the US tech companies is really significant um, insofar that it heralds potentially the fact that they are all going to have to leave Hong Kong. Essentially, they're facing a choice between either they can cooperate with this um, extremely draconian law and potentially um, allow people to be endangered um, for simply exercising their democratic rights, Um, or they can leave Hong Kong entirely. And it it appears as though this is a step down the road towards leaving completely. And for all intents and purposes, uh, this is temporary, they've said. So do do you think they'll budge? Do you think they will uh, remove themselves completely or kind of be lured back in um, for that financial interest that they have in Hong Kong? 
I mean, it's not super clear that they, the, that the companies who have taken this step actually do have enormously deep um, financial interests in Hong Kong. Most of the companies that have taken this step are companies which don't have um, particularly big market shares in the mainland Chinese market. And obviously this national security law, um, one of the impacts would be to bind Hong Kong much more tightly to the mainland Chinese market. And so it's not as big of a financial sacrifice as you might think. Um, and I suspect this is a, a combination of a um, political and a commercial decision for these companies that they've made the choice that the, the costs of staying in Hong Kong in terms of um, obviously the risk to their users in Hong Kong, but also um, the political complications um, and sort of reputational damage that would come from being seen to be uh, cooperating with crackdowns on democratic protesters is just not worth it for them from any particular perspective. It's really quite scary what this national security law means for a whole heap of reasons, but the, the end of democracy in Hong Kong just seems really um, realistic at the moment. So, I mean, the, this last year everyone's been watching Hong Kong really closely and, and these tech companies have made have played a really crucial role um, in these democratic protests. Uh, I was looking quite a lot into the HK Live app. When I was in Hong Kong last year, I, I used it myself. It tracked, it tracked the protest. It tracked the police whereabouts, it tracked um, where the water cannons were. And this is, you know, one small example of how much this technology was really driving this, these democratic protests. So so what's really going to happen? Have you put any thought into where Hong Kong's going to be heading from this and, and what the protests might turn into from here with this new national security law? Unfortunately, it seems like the most likely trajectory is that Hong Kong uh, will be taken behind the Great Firewall. So we're going to see um, uh, the sort of cyberspace in Hong Kong and sort of online organising and community gradually um, subsumed into to a similar situation as, as we see on the mainland. Uh, I, I think the Hong Kong, uh, the um, HK Live app is a really interesting example insofar that that was a case in which a, a US tech company, Apple, um, sort of had to make a decision about whether they were going to cooperate with um, law enforcement requests in Hong Kong to take that app out of the app store um, or whether they were going to uh, stand in support of the democratic protesters and leave the app in. Um, and they went back and forth on that a few times. And it's actually interesting that uh, Apple has been much more reticent to, to say whether or not they will continue to cooperate with Hong Kong law enforcement requests. Um, so, so you talk about how it's different for every different tech company and, and that that might seem obvious, but obviously they have different interests in China and different interests in Hong Kong. And what I found really interesting about your article was you talk a bit about TikTok, who, um, whose, China, uh, whose parent company is based in China, and then there's um, Zoom, which d the data is routed through China. Um, and they've also both stepped back from um, their participation in Hong Kong. Is this sort of some kind of rhetorical or PR stunt? Like it seems like they weren't really, they don't have that much to lose from stepping back from Hong Kong and potentially they just want to align themselves with more Western democratic values. Why were they, what was their role in, the, in this kind of tech step back, I suppose? Um, I think TikTok is quite a unique case, obviously, because they are owned by the Chinese company ByteDance, um, but also they have their sister app Douyin, which is the, the Chinese version of TikTok. Um, and while there's been a lot of coverage about the fact that TikTok very quickly decided they were going to leave Hong Kong completely, Douyin is staying. And so that's sort of an implicit acknowledgement from those companies that effectively uh, the Hong Kong market is now Douyin's territory um, and TikTok will focus on overseas markets. And it's probably also a, um, a political decision within TikTok 
that um, a recognition that being seen to cooperate too closely with the Chinese authorities um, would put them in trouble in other markets. We know that the the US in the US the Trump administration is already looking very closely at TikTok as are another number of other governments around the world. We've already seen it banned in India, for example. So TikTok's in a, a very tricky decision uh, position at the moment, and they probably decided they didn't need to add to that. Um, so I think Zoom is in a bit of a, a different position insofar that um, they recently faced a backlash over having decided to censor some uh, users in the US um, in relation to uh, a request from the Chinese authorities uh, over the Tiananmen Square massacre. What's really interesting about that is the role that these tech companies seem to be playing in upholding free speech and democracy. Um, it's sort of interesting to look at the role that they're playing compared to state actors. So maybe like the UK, you'd, who you'd think would have a role to play in countering the the CCP's influence, the encroaching influence in Hong Kong way too early for the basic law. But but these tech companies seem to be actually playing an even more um, obvious role in standing up for, it seems like they're standing up for democratic values. How do you, how do you think about that? I mean, I don't know if I'd characterise it as standing up for democratic values insofar that, I mean, I, I suppose it's a, it's a refusal to cooperate, but it is also in a sense a retreat. Um, because they are leaving, or, or, or they—that is the most likely course. Um, we, obviously, they haven't made any announcements, but the most likely course of action is that they will leave this territory. Um, and so, it is a bit of a pyrrhic victory in that sense, insofar that they are refusing to cooperate, but it does mean ceding the ground. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and one thing that you mentioned as well is the physical infrastructure. So not just operating Hong Kong, but the the data centres as well. So. Uh, Telstra spoke about this um, and how they're they're considering the future of the data centres that they have in Hong Kong. Uh, what what does this mean for the physical data centres and and will they be relocating somewhere else or what would the, what would they be thinking? You'd expect that a lot of international organisations will now be looking very seriously at moving their physical infrastructure out of Hong Kong because anything in the anything in Hong Kong essentially is accessible to the Chinese authorities at this point. Um, so you might have a number of people looking at moving to take. I guess it will depend where their markets are and how physically close they need to be to those markets. But you might have people looking at moving to Singapore or to Malaysia or to somewhere in Southeast Asia or potentially even to Australia. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I suppose to to wrap up, you really, you, you talk about how that this is the great firewall being built up around Hong Kong. And I think a lot of people are worried and they're, they're looking to the PRC and they're looking at Hong Kong and they're worried that will this gonna, will this happen to Taiwan? You know, where, where will it go from here? Um, and it's really quite scary to think about how this encroachment, when when it's it's not lawful, um, certainly by the basic law, this encroachment, how it may affect, affect other places in the world. Do you have any thoughts on that and, and, and where where it may be looking like in the future? Yeah, I, I wish I had something more hopeful to say for Hong Kong, um, but I think they're looking at a, a really dark period in the next few years to come. And obviously um, people in, in Taiwan will be starting to get quite concerned about the precedent this sets. Thanks, Luz. Thank you, Louisa. Finally, Brendan Nicholson and Michael Shoebridge discuss changing global perspectives on China. Hello, I'm Brendan Nicholson, editor of ASB's commentary site, The Strategist, and I'm here today with Michael Shoebridge, the head of ASB's Defence and Strategy Program. And we're going to discuss China and the massive changes that have happened in Australia's policies on China um, over the last two or three months. Now, Michael, we've gone from a situation where the 
government and, and a lot of se- uh, senior Australian leaders appeared mainly focused on the idea that China is our major economic partner and that we should not risk our economic relationship with them. Now, things have changed a lot over the last four years uh, from the days when Tony Abbott reached the comprehensive uh, strategic partnership with China. So how has all this happened? Well, Brennan, the backdrop to the this defence update, which, as you say, has got a real hardening in Australia's strategic policy, uh, particularly focused around China, is really a story about collapsing trust, a collapsing trust in the government of China to act according to its word and uh, to be a government that you can place any story. And really that collapse in trust started long before the pandemic, um, but it's accelerated uh, over the course of the pandemic. So you're right to think back to that high point between Australia and China of entering the comprehensive strategic partnership. But really since that moment, it's been a story of declining trust, uh, driven by Beijing's actions, whether it's hacking into the Australian parliament for the second time in a decade, or hacking into our uh, political major political parties, uh, causing the foreign interference scandals through Chinese money and influence that led to new foreign interference laws, or uh, concerns about the security of our new 5G network, particularly from big Chinese digital technology companies. Uh, that's before you get to military actions like the South China Sea or increasing military presence in the South Pacific. So all that's the backdrop to this collapse in trust. But the pandemic has been an absolute catalyst uh, for that problem. Now, Michael, the backdrop actually goes an awful way further back, right back to the 1970s. And uh, Gough Whitlam, our view of China then, Australia was one of the leading leading countries to develop a relationship with, with China. We talked of the peaceful rise. Were we misled or is this, was this planned all the time by Chinese Communist Party or is this something that's changed dramatically under, under Premier Xi? I think we're all beguiled by the notion of the peaceful rise, but you've got to just think about those words, a peaceful rise. The obvious question is, and what happens after the rise? So after China's power had grown, what would be China's behaviour? And I think that's what we're seeing now. China's economic and strategic and political power has grown, and the way we see Xi using that power is corrosive to their standing in the world and the trust that other governments can have in their words and their commitments. And I suppose this is a really interesting point uh, to to sort of helicopter back from the Australia-China relationship because we're seeing the same collapsing trust in other countries' populations looking at Beijing. So the ASEAN states, if you look at the last few years state of the region surveys from the ISEAS think tank, um, you'll see China is the least trusted major power on the planet, even as trust in the US has fallen under the Trump administration. And China is the power that 
ASEAN states, whether they're government officials, academics or business people, uh, see as least likely to be a benign power in their region. Now, the last survey uh, that this Southeast Asian think tank put out was taken over the period November to December 2019. If that survey were taken today, those fears and concerns about Beijing would simply be higher. And you see that same phenomenon in Europe with EU and various um, European leaders talking about the need to rebuild industrial sovereignty and the recognition that China is a systemic rival to the EU system of, of governments. This is all the same problem that was behind Australia's defence uptake. Now, in a different area of national security, Australia examined the whole issue of the 5G network and whether Huawei, Chinese firm, um, should be given a major role in, in setting it up for Australia. We made a decision that that would be, for national security reasons, unwise. Uh, Britain appeared to be ploughing ahead um, with a decision to involve Huawei closely, but now appears to be walking back on that decision. What does that explain? Well, the reason the UK has shifted is, again, because of Beijing's behaviour in the last few months. You've had the former head of one of UK's major security agencies, John Sawyers, say back at the end of 2019, he was a supporter of the previous UK decision to have Chinese technology in 35% of their 5G network. But he's now saying his assessment has changed. And it's because of the behaviour of the Chinese government over 2020. And that's cast doubts about the wisdom of having big Chinese digital companies in the heart of the UK's digital nervous system. So uh, when you get someone of that stature changing their minds because of the last six months, you've really got to think this is not a bilateral problem. Um, this is a problem that Beijing has with the rest of the world. And Xi's solution to that appears to be this wolf warrior style of diplomacy, as they call it. Um, is that going to work? Can it work? Maybe the hope in Beijing is that that portrays strength, that it, that it makes it sort of reasserts the idea that a lot of economists had before the pandemic that the trajectory of the Chinese economy and of Chinese power was inevitably rising. Um, this was really the backdrop for a lot of people's calculations and companies' calculations about engaging with China, that uh, the only way was up. Uh, maybe that wolf warrior um, aggression and the aggression on the India-China border and the very assertive uh, use of uh, coercive economics against Australia and threats against the UK if it shifts on 5G. Maybe that's an attempt to portray um, Beijing as in a strong position, but I think it's more a cover for weakness. And right now, trust is a commodity that is rising in value globally because it's only when you trust others that you think you can rely on them in crises, whether it's a a medical emergency, medical crisis like the pandemic, or a military crisis. So right now is a time for Beijing to invest in, in its stocks of trust that others have in it, 
And right now is the time that with the national security law it's enacted in Hong Kong, it's gone the other way. Now, Michael, there is a, a view among some in Australia that, that China is basically unassailable, that it's a, a monolith that's become more monolithic, that it's determined to rule this region and possibly much further afield, and that there's very little that we can do about it. So if we do try to stand up against China, against the background of, of things like developing our strike forces, that we'll be acting alone without the help of the United States and that it's not going to work. That's a very easy criticism to make, but it doesn't look inside China. It doesn't see the weakness of the Chinese economy or the weakness of their social security system. If we think we're having a difficult debate about JobKeeper, we're in a hugely advantageous position to the 300 million Chinese migrant workers. They're called migrant workers because they're working away from their home province. They get no social security, no support from the government. And in the collapse uh, of the China of Chinese domestic economy, they are left high and dry. So this idea that there's this inevitable growth coming out of the engine of the Chinese economy is unfortunately a false assumption. And we need to look with clearer eyes about this and bring the same critical eye we bring to our own economy to the Chinese economy. We have shifted in many ways our manufacturing base to China, as have many other countries in the West and even further afield. Is there a way for us to redevelop and recapture our manufacturing base, both generally for manufacturing, for things like pharmaceuticals, for the drugs we need to keep people alive, and for our defence industries? Do we have the, the capacity in Australia to do that? This is never going to be a case of Australia doing this alone, although I think we've surprised ourselves with the number of things we can do when the crisis demands it. So a, a little Australian company is now able to make 200 million medical masks per annum, and it could do nothing like that just a few months ago. Another little Australian manufacturing company that makes advanced systems for mining companies is able to make medical ventilators. So uh, we can do a whole lot more than we've told ourselves we've been able to do in recent years, and we need to do a whole lot more, but we need to work much more closely with partners we can trust. And that's where uh, countries like Germany and France come in. We're already placing major bets that we can trust them with armoured vehicles and with future submarines. And still America as a source of intelligence and technology a trusted partner for getting capabilities, even if we can't be so sure how America is going to use its own power in the world. So do you believe, in a way, fortuitously, there is a fortuitous element to this whole business that the, the pandemic has exposed a level of behaviour that was probably going to ultimately cost us dearly? Yes, it's, it's, a, it's like a, a near-miss aircraft collision. So we've talked for years about vulnerabilities that Australia has from the global supply chain, whether it's fuel or any other goods and commodities. Um, now we know it's very true for medical supplies. We also know it's true for munitions, missiles, anything that a military might need to fight. But the good news is 
we, we can see that we can address those vulnerabilities and we can do it with trusted partners. And Australia is at a high point internationally. We look like a partner that you can trust to deliver in a crisis. So our trust stocks have gone up right at the time Beijing's trust stocks have gone down. And that makes us an attractive partner in, in the new global economy. Michael Shoebridge, thanks very much. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join us for the ASPE Conference Strategic Vision 2020, which continues next week with discussions on China, Europe and Indonesia. To see the full agenda and to register for free, head across to the ASPE website. Thanks for listening.